Welcome to the jungle, or not. Uh, this is a time-traveling show, as you know. It's not about comics, it's about physics. And we're going to talk about time-traveling. Here in Spain, it's 5.30 p.m. There, where our guest is, is 8.30-something. 8.33, yeah. 8.33. So, as you know, I am a normal human being, but he's a fucking hero. <laughs> so that that's the first thing I gotta say is thank you, son, for being here so early. Thank you. No, not a problem. I'm up. Uh, I've been up for a couple hours. I got I got two small kids, so uh, I've already been out the house, dropped them off at school, and uh, don't say that. Don't say that. You were looking like a hero. Just say yes. I woke up only for no. this. <laughs> it's too it's too real to to lie to people this early in the podcast. I'll save that for later. <laughs> so how? How's things in your neck of the woods? Are things getting better? Yeah, Crazy, yeah. I mean, crazier, worse, what? Um, yeah, so I'm in LA, and uh, you know, my my wife and I are both fully fully vaccinated, and uh, the city is is post or sort of reopening full as of mid June. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you still miss? I mean, that we are reopening things. It's the same thing here in Spain. Uh, we're we're going for you know. Um, herd immunity, hopefully, hopefully by by mid August here. But is there anything that you are still missing that that you you would say, man, I could cut an arm? To get to do <laughs> no, maybe not that much, but you know what I mean. You know that you miss so much that the first thing that you could do when you know everything is safe. I would say get on an airplane and, and go somewhere new. Um, yeah, we used yeah, to, we I used to travel, travel several times a year, so. Uh, I, I think I missed that. I miss, uh, we were actually planning to go to Spain to visit some of my wife's family last year um, and do a big trip since the kids have never been there. But uh, that'll have to wait uh, maybe next year. We'll see how it goes. You can do it in August. That's why I'm going back there because I guess you're going back to the place, same place I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, uh, we'll just swap houses. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I haven't been there in because of the lockdown and COVID like a year and a half or something. Wow. And as you can imagine, you know what the Mourinho term means for Galicians. You know, we are like, <laughs> we can't, we can't, and, you know, we, we have to go back. Because, <laughs> because we, we're like vampires, you know, we start dying <laughs> with there for a long time. But, you know, we, we have to wait. But, you know, next time you go, let me know so I show you places. Will do. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. Um, do you miss conventions at all? A little bit. I miss seeing people. I, I miss, uh, you know, I think at conventions, I've I've learned how to spend most of my time outside the the con floor, and uh, you know, having having lunches and dinners and breakfasts and and drinks with people and uh, having a little bit more intimate conversation than than wandering around. I still like wandering around. You can catch me in a in a dollar bin and, and kind of digging up uh, stuff I don't need to put in my my office. But uh, <laughs> I miss the people uh, foremost. Yeah. Yeah, I think that most of the people I've been asking this question, we all get the same answers. Like, it's not that I miss the conventions that much. Of course, you miss the fans. But by the end of the day, what you miss is the, your peers, to be able to talk and to see people that maybe you see once or twice a year and yeah, to absolutely. have, you know, a coffee or a drink or lunch or just talk about whatever crap you can imagine at the moment. Yeah, I miss using a, an expense account to uh, to pay for all that too, so... I said that I <laughs> because I don't have expense accounts. In my case, yeah. are my like self-employed. Hi, how are you? That's like yeah. <laughs> um, what is the thing that made you pick the most masochistic route for your life? That is 
making comics. <laughs> I mean, I've I've been reading comics for as long as I've been I've been reading um before I even knew there were comic book stores. Uh, you know, growing up in the eighties, it was always comics packaged with toys, the He Man mini comics. Um, and then we had like an adaptation of Return of the Jedi that was missing like the first fifty pages, but I still was kind of glued to it and fascinated by it. So once. Once we were into uh, trading cards, and my brother showed me like the Marvel Universe stuff, which got me into a comic book store, and that was right, you know, in the days of right before. I think Infinity Gauntlet number one was kind of one of those first comics that I picked up off the rack at the store, just because it had all the characters in there. And then, um, you know, that was right before X Force one and X Men, and kind of the heyday of that, and then Image, and then um, aside from probably a couple, a couple maybe years off along the way, like I've just been fully into it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And how how was your path to get into comics as a professional? <laughs> uh, some some failures along the way. I'd interviewed. Uh, you know, I went I went to I went to college in New York, um, and part of that was because I knew that there was a comic book industry was like thriving there. So I knew that like if I didn't know how to get in there, I'd be at least close enough to the source. And I love New York City, and especially when I moved there, uh, you know, I used to have to drive twenty thirty minutes to get to a comic book store. And then I could just walk, um, two blocks and there was one. I walked four blocks. There was another one. I lived, I lived, um, uh, in the village. So there was a, a ton of great stores. And then once I realized New York is a walking city, walking up to Jim Hanley's and then eventually finding Midtown, um, you know, you could spend a whole weekends, uh, just digging for back issues and going about the town. So, um, yeah, after, after college, I went to school for, for playwriting and dramatic writing. Um, I found myself in the publishing industry kind of by, by accident. And then, uh, from there, I just started applying to Marvel and DC at every open position they had in the editorial department. And that took several years. And then finally I got a call back for, uh, from, well, actually I got an interview from Marvel, which I did not get the job. Um, and I think it was probably the best thing that had, had it happened to me. Um, and then six months later, I got a call from, from Bob Harris to interview with him in the special editions, um, collected editions program. And uh, that was 2008. And I've been working in comics ever since. Uh, why did you keep coming back? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't know this was going to be therapy. Like... <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that was a joke. That was people. I, I thought it was a joke. Um, why the jump to what was, what's different for you between, because you were at DC, as you said before, and then you made the jump to Skybound. Yeah. What's similar for you from an editorial standpoint and what's different? Sure. So yeah, I worked at DC for five years after Collective Editions when Bob was, we did the restructuring and, and Jim and uh, Jeff and, and Diane Nelson came along. Uh, Bob was promoted to uh, editor in chief and he had kind of encouraged me. And I think at that point I had been at DC for long enough to know um, it, while it was still a, a dream job, there was a lot of the reality of making comics was, was very real, the personalities and, um, the complications. Um, so after working in editorial, especially in like new 52 for the first two years, which is about the time I met you, um, I, uh, this job, this, you know, job offer kind of came up. Um, Robert and David Alpert, uh, the other, the co-owner of, of Skybound, um, we're looking to hire an editor, replace the original editor, Cena Grace and, I, I think, you know, about a year before I was at New York Comic Con, I remember seeing the Image Comics booth and it was a big Skybound thing and the TV show had just come out and I was, I was a fan of that. Um, I had read Walking Dead for several years, kind of had felt fallen off. And I think I'd just gotten burnt out from working on six superhero titles a month. Like 
think I realized the limits of what you could do there. Now, yes, like eventually, like maybe I could work on a Batman book, but then I, I think I just like the, the, um, the rewards just weren't there. So to go work on a company that was extremely small, there was five of us, uh, but to work on different sorts of titles, a company that was clearly, um, on the uprise between the show and then also the telltale video game was, was getting a lot of acclaim. Um, and very quickly I was working on superheroes and horror and sci-fi and fantasy. And it was just a lot more engaging. So I think the skills that I, I brought over the skills I always had as an editor, because before I worked in comics, I worked as a, in, in romance publishing. And that was always about, you know, treating the author fairly, communicating well, uh, scheduling projects, keeping people on deadline. I mean, that's, that's the, the skills that carries over But in terms of like getting a new, um, comic off the ground like it's a it's a you know it's it's really hard to find new stories to do with batman and new mm-hmm. stories to do with superman especially ones that engage and excite fans i mean there's there's a huge amount of craft to um all the successful big two two authors mm-hmm. and, and and uh artists um but on our side it was about building worlds and kind of each one was it was extremely hard to crack because there's a lot of uh options but you know, I, I like working with, with writers and artists and building new worlds. So, uh, while it's, I think I worked harder at when I joined Skybound, like it was more rewarding. Um, even if each project suited different skills, I mean, Robert's kind of autonomous, like he needs me to keep, keep him on deadline, but he's a terrific writer and doesn't need, uh, much feedback on the story side where other people want to be more collaborative and they kind of want to bring it 75% there, bounce it off you. And then, uh, and then kind of deliver a, a, a revised script. So, um, it just got less boring. You know, there was just, uh, the personal investment was there. I felt like I was building something and I got to build an entire comic imprint. And now we've been expanding beyond that. I mean, I've been with Skybound for coming up on nine years now, which is about three times as long as I thought I would be there, which just seems to be the natural lifespan of a comic book editor kind of bouncing around from place to place. So yeah, at this point, you've been almost double the time. That you were at DC, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I've spent like I almost. I don't want my, to make yeah. you feel old. That's not the plan. No, <laughs> I listen. I, I do that enough um, as is. But yeah, no. I mean, you know, nine years with a company is the longest I've, I've been with a company. Um, longest I've ever been in one place. We, we, my wife and I moved to from New York to LA to take this job. Um, a lot of stress in that time. We become homeowners and and parents of two kids. Like, there's yeah, there's been so much life change associated with the growth of this company from five people to, I think we have upwards of 80 or 90 employees right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just been a completely different experience, uh, working for a huge corporation and then working for, um, you know, a small business. Mm-hmm. How, how much freedom did you feel? And you still feel, of course, uh, when working on the skybound books as compared to DC. Oh, a ton, you know, um, you know, aside from, from, I'd say Robert's titles, you know, they've given me a, a large degree of, um, latitude to kind of bring in what I think will work. You know, I mean, Robert has multiple jobs beyond just being a comic book writer. He's engaged in, you know, successful television shows and, and movie projects. And, and David Albert runs the entire company and is also Robert's, um, producing partner. So they, they have, they have a lot of stuff. So I, you know, with every Skybound employee, it's all about like, come in, use this huge toolbox that we have here and really do your own thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Robert signs off on all the artists and uh, DA and Robert also sign off on all the pitches. But for the most part, I'd say, you know, 80% of them are me bringing them stuff. Sometimes they'll, they'll pitch writers to me and, and artists, but um, you know, myself and my team, I've now have a team of, uh, 
of three additional editors, plus I manage the um, production and design team. So we, there's a huge degree of collaboration. I think as we expand and we have some some stuff that we're announcing this this coming month that I thought we'd have we could talk about here, but uh, not quite. Um, that the rest of my team is really stepping up and making their own and giving them ownership to create an editorial voice and and new imprints. Uh, it's really exciting, and I think you know Alex Antone is is an editor that came about a year ago that used to work at DC. And, you know, we've talked a lot about what we're talking about here, sort of that transition and the different uh, muscles an editor uses to build a project there versus versus here. So, um, yeah, it's it's fun most of the time, but a lot of work, a lot of work. <laughs> and there's also a, a safety net component that I always mention when, when talking about, you know, companies like Marvel or DC for an editor and for a creator, for a writer, too, which is, you know, you always know there's jobs you can come back to. You know, Batman is going to do certain things at certain times. So if you feel like, you know, you're, oh, I'm, oh my God, I am dense today. I can write the word. So I know I can go to the trope. Yeah. But in, in your case, in your books, there's not those tropes, right? This is that there's no safety net. There's a whole more possibilities, but also there's a lot more risks as a creator. Yeah. I mean, we try to be there to be that safety net for creators to make sure that they're, they're pursuing something they're passionate about and, and engaging and making sure that we're the first reader and kind of know, anticipate how an audience will react, whether it's, you know, the retailers being the most important audience, which is, I think probably how my brain has shifted the most, where I think when I was at DC, I would thought all about as a fan and how readers would engage with the material. But ultimately, um, you know, being involved in more parts of the business over here, you realize, uh, the, you're actually selling books to the retailer and the retailer mm -hmm. is selling books to um, the consumer. Um, so that's, that's been great going to comics pro and other retail focus events. I mean, skybound hosts two retailer breakfast at San Diego and New York comic-con where we have, you know, a hundred plus retailers and give them our presentation and, and do a really open, honest uh, Q and a to know the struggles that their business are going through, how we can help them out. And um, so, yeah, it becomes like a, a much more, uh, organic process over here but yeah i wish there was a bigger safety net i think i think some of the things that we're pursuing in the future um you know as we grow into licensed comics and, and have big brand partnerships like that's kind of a safety net as we realize how much you know i think for a while we avoided doing licensed comics because we were so much about um the image ethos and what the founders had created but I also think that there's ways to partner with brands that have creators and like the original creators involved and original voices that don't feel like licensed comics. You're still giving them the same amount of care that you would to a regular uh, new project um, and doing it through licensed stuff. And that allows us to create more jobs for writers and artists we love, which is at the end of the day, uh, uh, what we're striving for. Mm -hmm. How much of your day right now is editing books and how much is the other sides of the bill of, of the business? What chasing around a two-year-old and and, <laughs> and being a dad? <laughs> I say fifty-fifty. Um, yeah, it's you know it's long. I yeah, I just brought on a new editor from from Boom, Amanda Lafranco, and um, part of that was you know finding really talented editors that could take over some of the work that I traditionally do because you know I've been doing this kind of um, the whole business side of it, but also I love still editing books. You know, I mean. I was work, I'm working with James Heron on Ultra Mega and still working with Robert on several of his books. Like I still have, I think, eight to 10 comics I'm editing. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that what it does, I'm good with giving script notes, but nowadays how good I was an assistant at scheduling and deadlines is just something that's, that's fallen away. Mm -hmm. um, so bringing and entrusting the rest of my editorial team to kind of take over a lot of the line editing. And then, you know, if I can get my projects down to, to four or five, 
that would be great. And that allows me to kind of go out and, and talk with potential partners, talk with um, writers and artists and look at bigger business opportunities. Cause you know, Skybound is, does a lot more than comics. We do film and TV. We do tabletop, a lot of merchandise, live events. I mean, anything that you've ever seen the walking dead be part of, like it's something that we, we know how to do. So a lot of it is collaborating with the rest of the um, department heads on how we can build, uh, build our comics into other uh, media um, opportunities and, and vice versa. So that's really exciting. Um, but I still do miss kind of the uh, just, just editing comics yeah. like with my head, my head down. Yeah. I remember, I remember a conversation I had with uh, Mike, Mike March and um who was it? Matt Idelson many years ago at DC when they were promoted to, you know, group editors or something like that. And yeah. we were having a coffee and suddenly, you know, Matt turned to Matt turned to Mike and literally said, when did you start being comic editors and, 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 uh, and move to be in, in, in meetings all the time? Yeah. And, and Mike, and Mike would just turn around and said, don't remind me. Yeah. <laughs> But for me, it was like, that's the moment when you, you know, Most of your time, that's what, why I was asking you, becomes the meetings and doesn't become the editing. Yeah. That's got to be painful, right? Because what you like to do to be is a creative, you know, in a way. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, even when I was in the office, I would be able to shut my door for an hour or two and just kind of sit on my couch and read and catch up on scripts and catch up on proofs. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the big shift over the past couple of years is like my focus was making comics. Now my focus is selling comics and mm -hmm. like selling other stuff. And, uh, You know, I, you've, you've met a lot of comic book editors. We're not the best uh, sales or marketing people. So, um, it's always a learning process. And we brought on Arun Singh from, from Boom earlier this year. Oh, yep. And I mean, he's fantastic. Like <laughs> to have someone that like I feel like is, is in there with me and, um, knows the industry better than I do and knows how to, uh, reach fans and retailers and also has the same passion, actually loves comics because I think yes. you do find people that, work at some of the bigger companies that just don't have a love for comics and it's a job they can sell anything or they can try to sell anything. Um, so yeah, that's been really transformative uh, for us as a whole. So mm -hmm. yeah. And a room is crazy in a good, in a good way. In a good <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> um, what? Okay. Imagine you get a pitch today. It could be it, two things could happen, which is you see something that's like, oh, I love this, or something that makes you roll your eyes and say, oh, fuck, not again. Yeah. Which is the, what's the stuff you, well, let me start from, for by, you know, by, by writers and then move to artists, because I know they're going to kill me if I don't ask about that. <laughs> um, um, what is the things you love to see in a pitch hmm. that make you, you know, appreciate it and stop and really read it? Uh, you know, in, interest, interest, um, the, the parts that interest you in, in a structure or whatever you want to see. Sure. And the parts that made you roll your eyes and again and say, no, not again. Why did you do this to me? You motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we, we talk about how to be more efficient in, in uh, acquiring new titles because, you know, we used to keep track how many pitches, pitches we'd get and say we get between the team, like four to 500 a year. And we only approve say six titles. That's it's not a very efficient process because, we try to be as, as thoughtful uh, and responsive as we can to each pitch. And it doesn't always happen, especially when people send them to me, which is why I ultimately have them send them to the rest of the team first, uh, if I can, unless I have a, a real personal relationship. Um, I think what we're looking for is very specific. Uh, you know, we're looking for a genre story 
that has like the twists and um, spectacle that you expect from like a great horror story or, or fantasy story. Um, and at the same time, you have characters with a real emotional journey. And there's an emotional core to that story that um, really grabs the reader. Because especially when we're looking at, at longer ongoing series, which are kind of focused as I think much of the industry has kind of shifted away from you can no longer do 50, 60 issue stories. And maybe if you get three years, that would be awesome or two years. Um, so characters journeys that will carry over and translate, um, to propel readers to keep coming back month after month and year after year. Um, we're not looking to reinvent genre, but generally find a new access point or point of view on familiar material. Um, so that's there. Things that annoy me. I mean, you know, there's a lot of times that we get things and they're, they're too similar to either something we've done or something that we're working on and isn't public yet. So you're kind of firing darts blindly being like, this may work for Skybound, even if it's terrific, if it's too close to, um, you know, for instance, before Firepower was coming out, we're kind of like, we don't really need, um, a big martial arts title because we know that we have this coming down, down the way, um, and even with like James Heron's Ultra Mega, it's like, here we have a kaiju story. People were, for a while, people were pitching us like a lot of kaiju or um, Sentai related stories. And we were just like, we know we have something that we really like. So unless you're better than James Heron or, or better than whatever, like it's going to be really tough for us to move forward. So I think we can be a little bit more selective. And mm -hmm. as we've built up the line and had some successes, um, you know, we do get a higher caliber of talent. So it's, it's easier to default to them, but also you want to find the project with them that's going to work as well. You you don't, we, I've been on the path of just taking the first pitch from someone that I really like and maybe not being the best fit, um, for Skybound and you kind of live and live and learn that way. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think as long as you have a voice, um, and you're looking to, uh, you know, push the buttons with, with, uh, with readers knowing how to build the first issue, having those, you know, not only the, the hook of the series, but each, you know, the end of the first issue has to have another hook, you know, like the hook that we sell to the consumer and the retailer up front can't be what's on the last page of the first issue. Otherwise they're going to be like, I know this. I'm, I'm, you know, everyone is so well versed with what's out there, especially comic book fans knowing what's out there. Um, we always try to be one step ahead and make sure that um, the reading experience really propels them onto the next issue. Is, is, is the, Prototypical, never talk down to your reader because they yeah. know, they know sometimes better than you do. So, but, <laughs> but the thing, the thing here is, is there a, is there a skybound type? I mean, for people to, for writers to pitch, I mean, is there something that you think it fits the, the skybound mold and something that doesn't or it doesn't matter? What matters is that it's a good story. Um, I think the, the genre part of it is, is the most important. You know, we, we want to tell big, splashy commercial, um, genre stories. I mean, they can be intimate horror stories, but I think as long as they kind of, and I, I know you can use genre for everything, like, like slice of life is, is a genre, but I think what we mean is sort of the, um, yeah, sci-fi fantasy horror. Uh, I would love to do a romance book. If someone has a killer romance book, we've been, We've been looking for a while and we have some opportunities. You know, I think a lot of our books have strong romantic elements, mm -hmm. but I want something that's like a romance book through and through. Um, I love that you say that because I've been for 198 <laughs> shows, which is this uh, in the last year. I've been repeating almost every show. When is romance comics coming back? <laughs> literally, yeah. literally, because I think as an industry, we need that. You know, yeah. not like, the, not like they did in the fifties, of course. 
but an updated, you know, it's when I talk about young adult, I always hear that's fine. We need those, but we also need romance comics, you know, for a different generation, for a different uh, age group. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, having worked in, in romance like that, that consumer and that reader is just as passionate as the comic book fan. Um, so you want to be respectful of, of that audience, bringing them over who expects certain, you know, tropes and, and conventions. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's tough. You know, I think you don't want to put in, uh, you know, a B minus romance title. Like I think yeah, we sure. sometimes put pressure on ourselves to find like what is the best and that prevents us from ever pulling the trigger, unfortunately. Um, but it's something that we're looking for. And so if anyone is, is watching and listening, uh, definitely hit us up. Uh, <laughs> now with the other part, which is what makes you roll, roll your eyes and say, why did you do this to me? When you get a when you when you get a pitch from a writer, I'm not that. I don't think I'm that emotional. Um, I think the thing is, you can find something where the concept is like really speaks to you. Like I can sell this concept, but the execution just doesn't live up to it. Um, you know, you're tempted to be like, I wish I could bring on another writer, but that really flies in the face of of kind of what we do of mm-hmm. of the um, creator participation and enhancing creators' voices. So. I think I think it's probably the failed promise, and I think a lot of us go, a lot of the editors uh, that I work with go down that path of being like, I can make this better, and it you make it different, and you never make it better. Um, so yeah, orphaned orphaned great concepts that just don't live up to it is is sort of a that might actually annoy me the most because it annoys me because I, I know them but still pursue them foolheartedly. So mm-hmm. yeah, but but at the same time, I I love that you mentioned that the frustration or change of brain muscle that if you were with another company like DC, as we talked before, you can just talk to another writer and say, you know, <laughs> you got to do this. But and the Scalibon is not, no, no, I stop. You can't do that. <laughs> you <just> can't. <laughs> no, you, I mean, I, I feel like at, the, at some other companies, you start by talking to multiple writers to begin with and then just kind of uh, find the best one, which, uh, you know. I still remember the new 52. Yes. <laughs> no, sorry, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. You just imagine it, guys. <laughs> and what about the art? What about um, what do you need to see from an artist? And we are not not only talking about um, about you know new talent. We're talking about solid talent that you think is a good fit for for Skyball. Yeah, I mean, I I, I have a my brain is definitely more fit for, for writers. So art, it's more, um, instinctual, you know, it's kind of a gut thing. You look at it and go like, Oh, I really like that. And then I think you dig down and, and look at the storytelling, look at the, the world building and character design. Um, you know, I think for a lot of our project, well, for half of our projects, um, I think it is looking at stuff that we try to identify artists and talent before, uh, Marvel and DC especially do. Cause once they get into that, that system sometimes it's hard to get out and also present to them to show like, Hey, here's this great way to do where you're getting paid a competitive rate, um, helping build your own thing. And then hopefully we can build you into another project or you can go and do your own image book or, or pursue mm-hmm. this whole alternate path. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's something that like Robert signs off on everything. So knowing what his taste is, but also knowing what my taste is and being able like, I'm confident in this artist and, and I think we're pretty well synced up. Um, you know, at, at DC, I valued people that could 
deliver a book on time or hit deadlines or if I needed six pages in one week, I knew who to go to, um, which is its own thing. It's just we don't we don't do that. Um, I think sometimes we spend we're a little bit too indulgent with artists and allow them to work on a book for six, seven, eight weeks. And that kills a, a larger schedule. Um, but, you know, we I like that consistency of writer and artist from issue to issue. And mm-hmm. um, so I think finding people that are amazingly talented that stand out on the racks and then can hit their deadlines. I, that's what everyone's looking for. I, you know, it's not a, it's not a new formula. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it really is a no when you, when you see a thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, Daniel Warren Johnson, I, I was familiar with his art uh, from, I think ghost fleet. I, I had seen it, but he had met my coworker, Sean Kirkham and Sean showed me some of his space mullet stuff. And I was like, Oh, this guy's amazing. And he doesn't look like someone that would immediately be on a Marvel or DC book, but definitely mm-hmm. fits what we do. And once he showed me uh, the pages, what became extremity, the first book he did at skybound, you know, it was just something on a, a gut level. And I love working with writer artists. Um, I think they produce some, my, probably my favorite books and not only the ones that I've helped, but the stuff I, I like to read. There's just a, a synthesis of storytelling. And each one works completely different. It's not like they don't all just like draw on the page. You know, some people do full script, some of them do plot, some just write through layouts. And there's just a different, and then they, they edit on the page as well um, when they're drawing or, or redraw panels, which mm-hmm. can be infuriating, but ultimately it'll bring out the, the, <laughs> the strongest work. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not surprised to see people that, that come up through ours and then, the success Dan has had. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm definitely eager to see him do more creator owned work. Um, mm-hmm. But I also know how hard it is to find ideas as a, as a writer and as an artist that you invest so much in and have to be really commercial to reach audiences. And so that's why you go, you know, once you hit a certain level of success, going back to do um, work for hire allows you to kind of just work different muscles and get out story ideas and things that are kind of halfway propped up. Um, I think it's very smart to kind of bounce back and forth. And it's also about your profile, right? I mean, uh, Daniel just is just doing, you know, beta reveal. Yeah. And uh, the only editor crazy enough to hire him, of course, gotta be Will Moss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know Will. No, but kidding aside, um, he just did that. You know, I was talking to him when I had Daniel here a couple months ago. And in a way, it's about raising your profile. You just go yep. do the marble stuff. Splashy, you know, people that didn't know you knows that you go back to your career own, and that has built your profile. So having the chance to be with the Skybound, with Boom, with Image, that we didn't have 15, 20 years ago. It's yeah. also changed the the industry as a whole because now artists and writers can always say, I'm going to try in the career own or creative participation arena, and I don't need to be 100% into the work for higher world, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I, I definitely understand going and doing those projects. Um, you know, we, we talk about the difference between having, having fans, uh, you know, people are fans of, of Venom, people are fans of Batman. Um, but how many of them are, are readers of Day Warren Johnson, um, or any of these people, right? So the conversion of fans to readers is, mm-hmm. could be small, but with the, the margins you make by selling your own, your own book, um, can be extremely, uh, profitable. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, you're always on the, on the move to convert fans into, into readers of, of creator own stuff. And I feel like once people move into that arena of coming to image as a whole and kind of exploring the diversity of books, um, they get converted overall. They kind of had yeah. that period where they just like turn their backs on all the, the work for hire stuff. 
Uh, but then eventually you just kind of, you kind of mix them together. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, Hey, I just want people to read. I think, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge reader. My kids are, are big readers. My wife is like, I just want people to read comics. So I'm yeah. not, I'm, I hope they spend the money on them for us, but, uh, you know, just read more. Yeah. But by the, by the end of the day, you know, when I get asked about monthly sort of graphic novels or worth, you know, Marvel DC or image and the others, I always say, why do I have to pick? Yeah. And people say, oh, because, no, not because. Why do I have to pick? I'm going, I just love to read. I love the characters. I love, you know, I can be not reading Batman for two years because I don't like the run and come back two years later. And probably it's going to be because of the creator, you know. Did you tell Absolutely. me, are you going to read Better Ray Bill? Maybe I won't say no. But then I heard, is, is Daniel Warren Johnson? I was like, fuck, yeah, yeah I'm reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually went to a comic book store um, to, to pick up Beta Ray Bill because I'm, I'm that big a fan of, of dance. But, uh, yeah, we, we have that. Com- he, wait, wait, wait. He hasn't sent it to you, bastard. No, that's, you know what? Like, <laughs> I was having the same conversation with, with Brandon Thomas once he started getting, um, more work at DC. I was like, you're going to make me buy DC books now all of a sudden. Like, I do buy some, but not like, I'm not, I don't go into the store every week. Um, so some of my, some of my creators, uh, that I, that I work with, like, like Josh Williamson will hook me up with, with PDFs of stuff. But, uh, yeah. No, it's, I, I you know, when we talk about like reading in any, that's reading anything. And I think a big change of what we've done the past year is knowing that there are so many different audiences that have grown up reading comics in different ways. So, you know, like yeah. I had, um, an associate editor Ariel that was working with me for five years and she was a big web, web comics fan. That's also like an economic thing, right? It's just up there. People are putting content up there. You can, uh, engage with their Patreon or, mm-hmm. or donate money, but ultimately yeah. you're going to get, at a good time, like content that's updated daily for multiple sources and you're just going to go there and there's going to be creators that you're really invested in that you see grow and they can be really raw the first 25, 50 chapters. But you know, once you're at 400, like there's this huge, <laughs> there's this huge tapestry to pull from. So that's kind of why we went into, into Kickstarter because Kickstarter has its own audience. There's not a lot of crossover between, not a huge amount of crossover between people that engage with Kickstarter and then people that are going to the comic book store every, every Wednesday or even once a month. Like it's just different audiences. So we want to be everywhere that people are buying comics. And yes, it takes a bit more effort to produce projects for all these, but um, the economic model for us works out that way where we can have these different revenue streams and also give different platforms for creators to create in, you know, we're working with web comics creators who have never had a, a print publishing deal. And that's really interesting for them to to work with us, um, for us to help run a campaign for them and then help run, uh, you know, print up these hardcovers and bring them to comic book stores in the book market. And, um, yeah, we've become a little bit uh, more more service-oriented in, in a way that we, we weren't before. And uh, it's exciting to bring new creators that we would never could have imagined working with even 18 months ago mm-hmm. um, into the fold. But that that just makes sense, right? For for a healthy, hopefully, yeah. for a healthy industry, to know that not all books are for the same audience. Not all books are for the same. You know, I always use the example of one one fan berating Steve Jobs many years ago <laughs> about that's and Steve Jobs wasn't exactly a polite guy, so yeah. <laughs> the guy was, oh, but but I I want that and it's too expensive or it's blue, whatever stupid thing. And Steve Jobs was like, that's a fucking problem. You know, it's, <laughs> we, you got to understand yeah. that not everything we do is for you. There's products for you and there's products for a different audience. Not everything we do is for the same reader or for the same buyer. 
I guess yeah. I think for a healthy company, producing comp- comics for you know the book uh, the, the book market or Kickstarter, as you said, or the comic stores, that makes you guys be able to reach different kind of readers and make them maybe make them read the other stuff they wouldn't read initially, right? Yeah, I think I think you also build the audience that comes to your books as well, like how you treat the fan base. And, you know, I think Robert put a lot of work into the letters pages and we always engage with fans in the back of the letters pages because it's important for us to have a voice. You know, when, mm-hmm. when a comic just ends and there's no, nothing from the, from the creators at the back, I feel like a little hollow. Like this is just a product I bought and there wasn't people behind it. Yeah. Um, and with Marvel and DC, I think that's intentional now, but, um, you know, there's plenty of, of other books, create our own books that just don't ha- don't want to engage fans. And I think that yeah. we've always now, of course, a fan base can grow beyond, you know, the Walking Dead fan base has grown beyond control. Um, yeah. And I think our, our social team um, does a really good job of, of treating them respectfully and, and, and fun. And, you know, I think we have an editorial and a voice as a company um, that echoes a lot of how, how Robert engaged with fans. And um, yeah, I, I also, you know, when you. Not everything is for everyone. I think what we try to do, at least on the publishing side, is build a ladder of, um, you know, people used to come to us at live events and just buy Walking Dead. And then they might buy Invincible. Um, and then they have a kid with them. And we're like, well, we have Super Dinosaur, right? So you go from Super Dinosaur to Invincible, where people's heads are being punched in. Like, what is, what, how do you, what, what are the rungs of the ladder that get you? There's something, there's a gap in there. <laughs> I mean, listen, there's also parents that were like, oh, here's my eight year old. He's read all the Walking Dead. And I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that, but at least he reads. So, um, well, look, I was reading Sabatro for Conan when I was five. Sure. Yeah. Because of my four older brothers. Yeah. So, well, that's a, that's, yeah, I know it explains a lot about me, but you know, it wasn't my fault. It was them. Finally, finally, I get it. <laughs> but so when you say that about easy rolls, I'm like, well, you know, that's not a good idea. But I have to think. Shut up, because you were reading Sabatron of Conan when you were five. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Now, on the flip side, you get, um, you know, I think it's more on the TV side where you'd have parents complain about like, oh, you're introducing uh, these queer characters. And my, my eight-year-old is watching this, and I don't know how to explain it to him. It's like, you you let them watch The Walking Dead. There's plenty of other things that are way more offensive than mm-hmm. having a, a, an engaging queer romance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's for, for, for us, you know, as you know, Erin is seven years old now, our, our daughter. And we were watching whatever show the other day, my wife and myself. She was with the iPad. And suddenly, you know, one, one girl kisses another girl. And she's like, Oh, she just killed the girl. We're like, yeah. So it's like, but girls can kiss. And I was like, yeah. So we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's, she didn't just think it was important, but when she sees a chop head, she's like, oh. Oh, yeah, I hope so. And she laughs. <laughs> we're like, okay, you know, they're in the world. But if, if it's just natural, it's just natural for them, right? It's like, it's like thinking about them in the same way we did. We grew up with with books. But I would say, you know, they were born with an iPad in the, you know, in their armpit. So it's yeah, a completely man. different world for them. You gotta, I have to teach the, her in a way to go back and read books because she started reading with the iPad. Okay. You know, playing, reading with the iPad. So it's normally for us was the other way, you know, from the book to the iPad. And for them, it's from the, you know, digital thing to the, 
to the to the book to the to the physical thing. Do you feel the same way? Is is the same way for you at home or or yeah. with the new generation of readers? Or do you think still, you know, the the printed media is the is the is the is the original one for kids for kids to start reading? I mean, with us, it was it was print at least for my my older son who's five and a half. Um, but that was you know we were we wouldn't give him the iPad unless we really needed to. Um, I think in the past year, whether been doing all the digital and learning from home, like it was a bigger problem because he was, you actually see where that tech addiction comes. It's, it's horrible. Wow. Like taking the, the laptop away is just like, like wounding them because they're just so engaged by it and they can just get lost in it. And it's so entertaining and it, whether they're reading to themselves or playing an educational game. Um, but I, you know, I, we would read two to three books to my son, you know, a night plus during the day. And then I got him, I got him probably when he was around two, I started reading, uh, Don Rose's, uh, Uncle Scrooge comics to him. And we went through the entire library. And so he was always looking at those. Um, and then also we actually have, uh, somewhere on the bookshelf, we have, a uh, Mortadel and, and Philemon, uh, comic that, uh, <laughs> that I, love, I love your family. I love your family. <laughs> <laughs> that is Americans, a well Americans right now are, are thinking, what the hell is he talking about? But every Spaniard around is saying, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, maybe I've talked to you about this a long time ago, but the first time I went to Spain with, with my wife, um, and we went into, uh, Coruña, within two blocks, we get out of the, <laughs> we we get out of the taxi and I see like a Batman statue just hanging off a building. That was because of the convention, yeah. They always yeah. do that because of the convention, yeah. And then like you know you see you see uh, you know Mortadon Philemon and then you see Hellboy and then Wonder and I was like what is going on and then I went into his building and there was Carlos Pacheco original art. I'm like. This, it was like, I just wandered into this, this comics festival convention and I was like, this is amazing. And they were selling comics on the street. And it was like just that specific, like couple weeks that we were there, um, in August. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was probably 2010. Um, yeah. And it was, it was, you know, you realize that there was a, a culture there. And then, you know, my, my, my mother-in-law talks to me all about the different, uh, you know, Spanish characters that I don't know. But, um, you know, I've since actually since joining Scabon, I've been able to go to a couple international conventions that I wouldn't have been to before. And it's, it's really cool to go to these places that you've always heard about, whether it's Angoulême, um, and, and see what the culture's like and see the, just how the conventions are run. I mean, you know, th that one at times was a bit more like a, like a book market show, or at least how they spend the money for the tents and the presentation. Um, it's more, it's more what the ones we do. I, I originated that show as, as you know, you know, I was in, in the first one, um, with Miguel Chopra, of course. And the, the idea was to do it part of, because in August, as you know, because you were there all the month, people, you're not going to believe this, but this is true. All the month is the, the, the party month for my hometown, like all August from beginning to end. You have concerts in the street, on the, on the beach, on the town hall square, on, you know, you have food everywhere, you have everything, you know, it's just a party. And, um, and one of the parts of the party was we wanted to have the book fair happen that month, the, and also the comic convention, we wanted it to happen. As part of the of the body of the town, so that's yeah. why you have the tents, you know, in the middle of the street, and and in the museums, that's where we have the exhibitions, and everything is really open, and there's you don't pay tickets for it, so right. it's part, so it's part of the it's part of the town, of the town, you know, main main celebration for for a week or two. Yeah, it was it was it was awesome. I mean, uh, you know, I I really I really like Spain. I've been able to go there several times with with uh with my family now and. Uh, I especially love that. I, I love, I love that area uh, of Spain. I mean, it reminds me a lot. I grew up in, in New England. So oh, yeah, having, that's, you that's, know, 
Yeah, that's that's very similar. In fact, yeah. You know the, the food. Yeah, you know, the the food, the, the seafood, the fresh seafood, and um, my my mother in law. You know, has lived in a couple. I think she was originally from grew up in Madrid, but later on they moved to um, um, La Isla de Arrausa, um, mm-hmm. just just north of of Portugal, and. This, so many family members are just fishermen and bringing in, you know, fresh catch of the day that morning and just having like just a simple, well-prepared meal and football yeah. gallego. Just, I mean, you know, the, the food, the food has really sold me on, on your culture. So. Uh, we, as, I, as I always say, we don't have many things in my town because it was always poor. And that was the, we have a lot of immigration and all that, but the food yeah. and the drinks, yeah, we are unbeatable. So you cannot beat, you know, the seafood and all that. And my family was the same. You know, we had a lot of family members. My grandfather, in fact, died. You know, getting getting cockles on the because, sure. as you know, it's very difficult yep. because of how, how the shape it is. The Atlantic Ocean shape and it's very dangerous with the with the, with the Atlantic Ocean with the water. And uh, a lot of my family was also fishermen and people like that and i live literally two minutes away from the longha you know where where the fish the fisherman boats come so yeah. i went with my mom almost every morning to to get the fish after they gave it to you know to the stores people could buy the fish there not anymore they can buy but you could buy you know the fresh fish just there take it home and five minutes later you uh 15 minutes later you were you were eating it yeah so it was like That's the awesome. freshest you can imagine so yes, I miss that a lot, as you can see. <laughs> I think it's <that's> obvious. <laughs> Sleep, a reader, sixty-six says hi. People loved Ultra Mega from Skybound this week. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know which books come out. I know when books go to print. I can tell you that we're putting uh, the Walking Dead Deluxe Seventeen to print, Ultra Mega Number Four to print. Um, what is out this week? He just said he loved it this week. Oh, so, okay. So I guess so I guess he's out already. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Actually, well, um, three number three came out I think last week. Um, so yeah, thank you for reading. That's been a that was that's been a cool series. I mean, James had kind of pitched us from the very beginning. Was like, I want to do a sixty page first issue. Um, you know, kind of do a kind of a synthesis of American and and, and manga, especially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of fight comics. So he wanted a space that if we wanted to do a, a 20, 25 page fight scene um, that had emotional intensity and, and cool action, that we could do that. And um, it kind of synced up with, I feel like DC, well, I mean, Marvel, Marvel and DC, but I feel like DC did it slightly better in their anniversary specials that were like a hundred pages, nine ninety nine, but it was all new content and they were still selling. Yes. People want to buy anniversary issues and there was huge creators attached to them. But I think that retailers and consumers really don't mind spending more money. If there is more content, um, you know, that's why they like graphic novels. So if we're delivering a 40 to 60 page, um, comic every month, or at least for, for four months for the first arc, uh, at seven ninety nine, like people have no problem because I think it really delivers, and it's also you know uh, DC's doing that with Black Label, and yeah. I like latching onto to new formats as a reader. Like if someone marries good content with a new format, then I'm sort of like, oh, let me let me dive into it. and I'll buy a bunch just to kind of see how it's working. So uh, yeah, thank you for reading. That's also an amazing point you just raised because in in many occasions you got, and I got this from a. One of your old bosses at DC, which I, we won't name here, at least not live. Okay. Um, uh, when we were talking exactly about that, about formats, about trying trying new things, you know, I always t- try to bring, as you know, European and South American and even even Asian uh, perspective, you know, like 
the things that work here could work there. Why don't you try? Yeah. And the answer was, we've always done things this way. We do things this way. We've all, we'll always do things this way. Yeah. And, and I was like, why? So honest question. Do you think there is any limits to what you can try in terms of formats in college? Because I don't think there is. No, I, I don't. I mean, listen, uh, you know, with what we're doing, we're working on stuff that, I mean, so we'll work on a, a regular 32 page comic and then we'll have an OGN and then we'll have this 48 page comic. We're doing this anthology series this summer called Skybound X, which has mm -hmm. stories from, um, we've never done an anthology series, especially with, with, uh, existing IP and, there's a serialized story running across all the issues, but the rest are all eight page stories. We've never done eight page stories. A lot of creators are like, I've never written an eight page story. I'm like, they're fun. I think all comics should be eight pages. I think yep. if you are just stuck with eight pages, I mean, I, about a year ago, I was really reading a lot of Judge Dredd and I'd never read this much Judge Dredd at one time. And I like just that five, what is, I don't know, I think it's a five or six page like interval. Yeah. Like you, I, I actually was reading more because you're like, okay, let me just get through this. And then you're like, I'll read another one. And then it's like very consumable. And that's when you talk about webcomic and web, web content, it's the same thing, right? You're, it's very consumable. It's there. It's waiting for you. Um, no, I listen. I think as long as the story fits the format, we're not forcing it. I mean, we launched firepower last year and Robert's idea was like, I'm going to launch it with a, the first volume is just going to be an OGN mm -hmm. and then it's going to become a monthly series. And, like, <laughs> I think sometimes it takes, but I think if, if you're able to communicate that effectively to retailers and consumers and they're like, oh, I'm in good hands. I understand what he's doing. And he's giving me seven comics for $9.99. And then if I like that, I will buy the next one for $3.99 and then keep going from there. So, no, I mean, listen, I think um, we don't have to litigate the past, but I think uh, innovation and people thinking outside the box is not necessarily that's necessarily something they were interested in. Um and I think even when you do something like New 52, uh, there was a lot of good stuff in there, but time is always the problem. Uh, doing 52 at the same time probably led to some huge uh, creative resources drains. Like, it's a cute number. It's a really cute number. But, like, we were we were pulling talent from Flashpoint books after first issue to, to do first issues. And then, you know, you just do the math. You're like, we're going to, at three or four, there's going to be a log jam of where people just can't hit their deadlines and then you're going to need to bring new thing. And then you're going to have all replacement artists on issue three or four. And then you're like, that's going to look terrible. So, you know, there's just, there's a lot of logistic problems and it, there was a lot of effort. I mean, you know, people thought about this a lot. People cared about this a lot. Um, it was just really, really ambitious. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, there was some really fine books that, that came out of that run. I mean, you know, I think if you look at any huge, big relaunch, like you're not going to, all of them aren't going to be complete successes. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really like what Hickman's been doing on, on X-Men, but there's books that I'm just not interested in and don't need to buy everything or read everything. Um, nor should that ever be the goal is to consume everything because it will drive you crazy in comics. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm broke. I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> especially, especially broke. Yeah. Though you know what? I mean, honestly, like Marvel unlimited for me has been a great way to keep, keep up on stuff. And then I'll buy collections of the stuff I like the most, but also lets me like kind of discover new writers and, and new artists. Um, and actually with, with COVID they, they shorten their window even further. So it's a little bit more immediate. Yeah. Um, by the other day, it's about, as you said, establishing a relationship with your retailers and your readers where they trust you, right? I mean, yeah. even if you change the format, they know they're in good hands. If yeah. you change the format and they don't trust you, they're going to start yelling <laughs> and berating <laughs> you in like five minutes. But if they trust you, you you know, they let you guide, they let you, they allow you to guide them in that sense, right? 
Yeah, I mean, we we deli- we did something that no one said could be done. We gave them a brand new original Skybound series and die 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 without them knowing about it. We just shipped it to them for for free because um, we we talked with Diamond and talked with Image, and and at the end of the day, that was the only way we could do it that was like legally appropriate and also like made us feel good about it and allowed them to just. Uh, you know, and there's, there's things that could have worked better. I think that the secrecy of it sometimes, like probably the new 52, sometimes secrecy gets in the way of mm-hmm. um, better communication and um, some more transparency. But we also, there's such a deficit of surprises these days and people want to, to spoil stuff just so they get media hits. Yeah. Um, I think we err on the side of, of, of secrecy. But um, we're, we're willing to try new things. I mean, we launched a... Negan lives and another one that we didn't tell people about and just sent it to retailers for free because we knew they were hurting. Um, you know, we Robert's earned the advantage to do crazy, crazy things because he really cares about comics and yeah. we know that fans will react in a very uh, positive way to them. So that's, that's the other part of it that some people doesn't know, but it's very important to stress that you just said is how much Robert cares and loves comics still, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for as uh, we, when we get together, um, you know, before, before the pandemic, like we talk about comics all the time and, um, original art. And, you know, I, I started collecting original art since joining Skybound because not only him, but my coworker, Sean Kirkham, were big into original art. And yeah. And then once we start talking about, say, like what was going on with the AMC TV show, I knew like, Oh, we got about two minutes left. Like <laughs> this conversation is going to wrap up. Like this is just too much reality, but we, you know, we we're close to the same age and have have taste, and we can have good natured arguments about who's better, Wildstorm or Extreme. And it's clearly Wildstorm, but like he still thinks Extreme is. Um, no, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me show you. Let me show you. Is, let me. Uh, what is that? It says Wildcats issue fourteen. Travis Charis, his first issue. Nice. Yeah, I've had. I've had I've had my a on uh, my eye on on a, some pages by him. Uh, I have some Sean Phillips uh, Wildcats art with a uh, Grifter and Zealot that I that I really appreciate. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, listen, I actually love I love Wildstorm. I think they did what they just invested in in really great talent um, mm-hmm. on That's the writing true. and art side. Especially like, the longer they went on, they just were like, we're just going to hire really talented people and let them do whatever they want to do. And it was like it pays off. I mean, I still, when people ask me how you think this should be structured, I'm always like, have you read sleeper? I'm like, sleeper is just like the most beautifully crafted story. It's like there's single issue stories that build up to a bigger arc. And like, yes, it's serialized and each issue builds on it, but like they get in and out and they just tell you, and yes, it helps to have, um, you know, Sean Phillips executing the art because already back then he was really skilled, but you know, it's no surprise that those guys have, have built up the career that they have. And, and even what they're doing, we talk about formats, like with the, um, the reckless series of OGNs they're producing, like it's fun. I may not, you may not like either, like both stories, but you're going to find something that's really engaging and, and fun. And there's going to be another one coming four to six months. And you're just like, here's a series of books. I watch fast and the furious. I don't like every movie. You don't have to like everyone, but I enjoy the experience of like, what's going to happen next and knowing that it's going to, to be there. So, yeah. Now, I, I, it's fun that you mentioned that because I just have this page here because yesterday I have James Robinson mm-hmm. and we were discussing that. And one person asked him, you know, if he had instructions by Jim Lee when he started doing the book, you know, about 
do it differently than, than than what Brandon and I did, or do it, you know, follow the same path and all that. And James just said no. Uh, Jim was a really cool guy and just told me to do whatever I wanted. He, he, <laughs> he, he didn't ask me. He didn't tell me what to do, and uh, so I just did what I, I, you know, he started with the first arc with Ben Santini and those characters because yeah. he felt the other Wildcats weren't so grounded. So he said, "I need to do a, an arc when I round the characters, so if people see we're going to round them and then go back to the other characters because it's going to feel jarring if yeah. I just, you know." Turn the thing around to what Jim was doing. So, yep. uh, but by the end of the day, he was like, no. And, and I asked Kurt and any others, and they were like, no, with Jim, it was so whiskey, gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. So that was made Western uh, special for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's a good, it's a good lesson. I mean, I think that there's, uh, the right balance is a little bit of editorial, uh, guiding and steering, but ultimately if you hire, the right writer and the right artist, like you're going to produce something, something really nice. You know, I think that um, my lessons at DC were, there's a lot of people that got frustrated in the process, but also they didn't have a vision. You know, it's, it's hard to create a vision for an established character, especially something mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it's, whether it's six issues or, or a multi-year plan, like not everyone thinks the same way. So um, yeah, that's, that's cool. I, we I talk about Wildstorm probably too much with with my comic friends, but uh, it's something that I I have a fond nostalgia for, but I also think is like actually really good as well. Not yeah. all of it, you know the yeah, title. No, no, of course, of course, but no, there was even <laughs> Alan, even even Alan Moore made a blunder at Wildstorm. You know, Alan Moore, it's like oh, Budu, that book is like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, let's not talk about that. You know, I prefer uh, to remember Alan Moore for ninety nine percent point nine of his career. Not <laughs> <laughs> oh man, as someone that that was uh, forced to work on a voodoo comic series, uh, yeah, that's. I think it, it, you know, if Alan Moore couldn't do it, I don't think that anyone else was going to be able to to find the the path for that character. Yeah, but no, no, there was a lot of. I, I believe not, not, not offense to anybody, of course. But I think that the most solid studio at the beginning, as a studio, as a whole studio, was 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 Wildstorm. The others, of course, they all had amazing stuff. You know, I, yeah. I still have the original issues of Spawn. You know, where sure. each one had a different writer. You know, like Grant and the others. Yeah, yeah. So those are in those are in a in a safety box. But I, <laughs> you know, there there was some good stuff. Of course, the darkness and some of the stuff that Top Cow did. But as a whole yeah. line, I agree with you. I think I think Wildstorm was the most solid. Well, yeah, and I mean, I'm glad you brought Top Cow because I I really got into Top Cow more with the darkness than than Witchblade, but they had such an incredible run too. Like yep. all those studios had a run, like had had a period in which they were the best, and it's really fascinating. Um, yep. You know, um, and I think that we Skybound we kind of took our, our our cue from like the risks that they took, but um, the rest of the entertainment industry is caught up in a way that we're able to kind of do the, what they want. You know, they were always talking about, Hey, cartoons, action figures and movies and all that. And we're actually able to live in that world that the, the movie goers want to want to uh, engage with this stuff. And I mean, we just launched invincible on Amazon and it's been picked up for two more seasons. It's been a huge success. And you know, that probably wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. You know, we might've been some, um, so it's really, it's, it's fun to see. On the mm-hmm. same side, I don't want to engage with all the superhero or comic book content out there, uh, which is actually good, right? I can I, I have my choice not to engage with it and um, and don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
uh, leave me alone. I don't want to do it. You're not going to talk me. <laughs> you know, what? it's the it's the uh, the expectation. I don't I don't get angry about it. like I understand why how people adapt things and why they do. It's just some things just aren't for me any longer, mm-hmm. right? Like you just go like, oh no, that's for a new audience, and that's for that's just not for me, and I'm fine with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I said before about Steve Jobs. You know, not everything we create is meant for you. So I accepted a long time ago, you know, like, yeah, maybe that book is for that audience, but it's not for me. I'm not have yeah. nothing against that audience or that book. But don't try to force me into reading it because I'm going to say the same thing. I don't <laughs> give a shit. I don't want to read it. <laughs> yeah, and we're, you know, as professionals, we're supposed to be polite about other people's work. So I just, you know. I am polite. No, <laughs> most of the time, yeah. Well, I don't know. I wasn't being a polite. I, I, I don't please uh, don't don't misunderstand me. I I'm polite, but I I always try to explain that those books are meant for some readers and not meant for. Oh no, I absolutely. Not, I am not yeah. talking about the quality. I'm gonna say, yeah. you know, it's like when I talk about Sex and the City. Uh, my wife watched it religiously, or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She loved yeah. it, and I couldn't. I was like, you know, I am going to say it's a bad show. No, I'm going to say it's a show that is not for me. Yes, that's what I meant. I wasn't trying to offend anybody. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't think of that. You know, as, as, as someone, I, I enjoyed watching Sex and the City for what it was, uh, but unfortunately lived in, in New York when that was that was still on and just saw the cascade that it had on the, the population trying to live, basically cosplay as those women, you know, for the next 10 years of, of my life. It was, <laughs> it wasn't really something I enjoyed, but um, yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh there's just a wealth of entertainment. There's more entertainment than there's ever been. And, uh, mm-hmm. you just have to be, um, targeted, you know, target the stuff that you want to and, and bring up the stuff that you really enjoy. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Ramon F. Bax, uh, hello there. The artist Ramon F. Bax, hello. He's watching. And then Ramsey Hassan says, are conventions the best place for emerging talent to pitch you? Um, you know, we don't do open submissions. Uh, if you're an artist, um, you know, I think tagging, Myself or other people on uh, other parts of my my team, uh, Amanda LaFranco, John Moisen, Alex Antone, um, tagging them. That's that's you know you may not hear back uh, if we like it, you will. Um, but that happens fairly frequently. But I think nowadays, like that's where I do most of my scouting is when I had more time for scouting was just go scrolling through Twitter, going through people's websites. Uh, I would say if you are an artist, make sure that you have a clean, presentable, easily navigable website that shows off. Um, if you do covers, shows off covers clearly. If you want to do sequentials, make sure it shows sequentials clearly. There's a lot of stuff. You see people with great styles, but like, I'm like, I don't know if they do sequentials or if they're interested in doing sequentials. Um, and so that's, that's part of the process, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, make sure you have something that's, uh, easy to show someone digitally these days for sure. Have you, how many times have you had to say to somebody, because I know when I have to say it every day, um, if you want to do sequentials, I need to see sequentials in your portfolio. Not as often as, as I used to. It's more I say that to, you know, we'll do a lot of artist discovery and I'll talk with my team and be like, I don't, I can't hire this person unless I see this. So hit them up, see if they have stuff to share. They might just not be showing them um, on their website or they may not be interested. So yeah, that's, that's what we have. I mean, listen, there's, there's so many avenues for artists to kind of show their work off. There's some people that just do exclusively prints and posters. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just, people can make a living as an artist in, in many different ways, or at least, uh, you know, supplement their income. So um, we just want to make sure they want to do what we want them to do and make sure we're on the same page. How was it for you to become a writer? 
it was just natural. It was something that Robert imposed you to do. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, no, probably the opposite. Why, why, why did you do it? Why did you decide to do it? You wanted to um, be on the other side of the fence and suffer it, you know, like. <laughs> no, so I mean, so I went to I went to school, um, and I, I was I studied dramatic writing, and I was studied playwriting, and um, I, I love I love the theater. And, um, for a period of my life, I thought that that would be the life I would pursue, but I always loved comics too. So, um, I've always done some writing and I did some, some, I did a, a book doctor, this big sci-fi YA novel. So I, I'd been doing some writing and there was some, some stuff kind of going along and I was like, I got a couple ideas and Robert had always been like, yeah, I don't know if I want, you know, he kind of held to the old belief that comic editors shouldn't be, shouldn't be writers. Um, but I think again, Image and Skybound is a unique place, and, and I'm sure even you know Boom and other play Oni, where you know if you can create your own idea and you can execute it, then you deserve to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had worked with Nico Walter, the co-creator of Gasolina, on this other book called Demonic. He had just he had actually come up to me at a comic show, had his portfolio, basically like shoved it in my face. I was like a little too busy. I was like, hey, come back later anticipating he would not show back up. He showed up exactly on time. I looked through it. It was like, wow, this guy's got some, like he's got storytelling that I've never seen anywhere else. Like there's things he can work on, but his storytelling is very unique to him. Um, so I always kind of knew that I wanted to work with him on something. And um, yeah, I just, I had this idea and I, I, I paid Nico just because I knew what a position I was in of one, not only to, to Robert, who's, you know, the mo- most successful comic book writer working, um, making sure that he liked it and let him know that I was serious, that I wrote three issues. I paid Nico out of my own pocket to draw the first issue and uh, presented it to him. And uh, he was a bit, he was a bit surprised and um, maybe not, not extremely happy, but he got, <laughs> he, he reviewed it. Um, <laughs> he reviewed it like in 24 hours, uh, gave me some notes and we took it from there. And um yeah, it was, that was a little bit nerve wracking, especially because like, yeah, you are so public and that's something I hadn't experienced before, right? You're so used to helping other people up on their journey and, and putting it on the market. And if it succeeds, great. That's, that's all on them. And if it fails, great. That's, that's all on them. Um, you know, Skybound has obviously some of it, but mostly it's going to be that person's name attached to it. So, uh, I didn't want, I didn't want my creators to think that I was like a weak ass, a weak ass writer. Um, so yeah, you know, it, uh, critically it was, it was, it was fine. Um, sales wise could have done better. We were nominated for an Eisner for, for best ongoing series. Uh, that was announced, I think right as a series was wrapping up. So that was, that was really surprising. Um, and I think, you know, I was, I was happy. I, I, I had no expectations for that. So for that to have happened was, was great. It now makes all my creators think that they should be nominated because, uh, everyone's competitive and, uh, you know, they're all like, Hey, when am I going to get nominated? I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know how this process works is a ro- rotating, you know, judges every year. Um, just do the best work. You know, I, I think that's ultimately at the end of the day, like you got to be happy with your work and, and any, um, you know, awards or, or sales success will definitely help. But mm-hmm. as long as you're you're gearing towards making the best story and collaborating well with the rest of your team, um, that's what we're most focused on. But yeah, I don't know. I would I would like to do it again. Um, so you know, mm-hmm. uh, Jeremiah Bailey, what is your favorite romance story or favorite romantic pairing in comics, TV, or film? Um. The first one that comes to mind is uh, Coach and, and Mrs. Coach from Friday Night Lights. Um, I just, 
I, I thought it was a different take on you, you rarely see a happy, successful um, marriage like that's portrayed like that. And obviously there's, there's strains and stresses and arguments, but I think at the end of the day, you realized um, how much they, they loved each other and that carried through and, and their care for their daughter and their care for the community and their care for the team. Um, yeah. I've always loved that. And I love, I love the acting there. Um, they're, they're both amazing. They're both amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, beyond that in, in comics, I don't know. I don't know if I have, I, I don't think I, I've, I, I think about things that way, um, or at least have, have lost some of that joy. Maybe, maybe we'll just go to the classic, uh, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Wolverine, Love Triangle, um, which may not, may just be like a polyamorous situation these days. I'm, I'm not quite sure. So, so good for them. I feel like that was ultimately. Considering Hickman on those books, I wouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> good for them. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud they finally found the, uh, the evolution of love. So. You mean the balls to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I was. I thought you were going to say Peter and Mary Jane. To be honest, no. I you know I didn't grow up as a big spy. Like I like the character Spider Man, but there's no run that I've been glued to. I mean, you know, the Ultimate Spider Man run. I I probably picked that up and have read all of that by now. Um, no, I mean from the movies, maybe I, I've always liked the Spider Man movies, but. Uh, no, nah, there's no one Spider-Man run that like I I think is my run. It's just I just like that character and what it represents. So, what about you? Your favorite? Favorite romance in comics: Longshot, Longshot, and Dazzler. There you go. Nice. Because of the purity, yeah. you know, he he was so pure, and I always remember one scene of uh, I don't know if you read this years ago uh, on the how was the name. High Evolutionary War. Mm-hmm. One of the animals, of course, was Arthur Adams with uh, with Claremont. Uh, there was a moment when uh, Rogue has to take, you know, long shots powers, and you see Dazzler's look. It's, it was pure soap, you know. That yeah. like she's uh, she has to, of course, Rose has to kiss him. So it's like you see the triangle there. Like I'm gonna lose him. She's gonna kiss him. Yeah. And you see that moment. You're just like, oh my god, that's Roman's comics. Claremont <laughs> went, went there. He just went there. So yeah. I always remember that scene, and probably the probably the one I love the most is that because of the purity, you know, because he was so pure, and she was so caring for him. Yeah. So I, I love that, and and yeah, and always, you know, as I said, Peter and Mary Jane until you know the Mephisto thing. Not <laughs> <laughs> so. If, 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 you know, if I say uh, Clark Kent and Lois Lane, maybe, but that 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 never felt like romance to me you know it's yeah I, I believe it's a love story but never felt like a romance like a romance arc yeah yeah i agree with that have to happen sometime with <laughs> with something <laughs> jeremiah bailey are there components or aesthetics of manga that you think can be brought over to american comics for example anthology style black and white character popularity polls voting was series will continue yeah, you know, I was actually talking about this with, with James Heron recently. And, um, you know, I go through periods where I get deep into, into manga. Like I, you know, I, I probably ripped through 20 volumes of My Hero Academia, um, back in November. Just, you know, I, between that and One Punch Man, like the Japanese understand or how to create, uh, engaging superhero comics better than we do at this point, mm-hmm. um, which is really fun and exciting and, and inspirational, but also just like as a superhero reader, 
just I really enjoy. Um, I love their their character um, popularity polls. I think that's just like fascinating. But when I was talking with James, I was like, you know, I'd be, I wish we could like produce that volume of content and be able to do that. And he's like, he's like, Sean, those guys die. Like that's why they die so early. Like, and there's like, we don't think about the, the, the health of artists working. Um, I'd say more especially probably than writers, uh, the, the strain it takes for them to sit at a board and especially in Japan, like just the, the sheer volume of content and the assistance and, and the speed. Uh, I don't ever see it here. You know, I think that. America is sort of the the balance between speed and quality where Europe leans more into quality uh, of art. And then yeah. Japan is definitely high quality. I don't want to take what quality, but the speed is in, in the frequency. And it's also the audience. I mean, you know, how much money is, is that's, you know, is in play there. Um, this just got a much bigger audience, but yeah, I, um, I think when you look at it in the storytelling, and that's this is something that's just been continuing since, you know, I feel like the biggest conversation was when like, Joe Moderera was on X-Men, like an influence of Ghost in the Shell. And like, that was like a whole conversation of, of people being exposed to manga and Appleseed and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I was watching, um, I started getting into anime probably in the mid, the mid nineties. And, you know, it was, they'd show it at like seven 30 in the morning on, on a Sunday morning. It was, it was like, you know, you had to discover, you had to go into, I had to go into Boston and, and go to up by um, Harvard Square where they had the stores that that catered to those audience. They were very specialty shops. So um, yeah, I think I think it's just I think we're blended more than ever where people are reading across um, across countries and content. And so that stuff just kind of bleeds in. I think that you know, like I said, Daniel Warren Johnson and and James Heron uh, express huge qualities of that um, in their work, um, and it, as well as the influence of, of early nineties image, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. But, but that's, that's, that's fascinating what you just said, because I mentioned it to, to Daniel when Warren Johnson, when I had him here, that I don't think there's frontiers anymore. I mean, when people talk no. about American comics or European comics, manga is, is an exception. Manga is manga and, and it looks like manga, but in, you know, just seeing Enrico Marini, you say it's Enrico Marini. He's an American artist. He's an European artist. He does the Joker thing for Batman. Yeah. And if I didn't tell you, he's a Swiss guy <laughs> that has been doing, doing European, European comics for 25 years. You wouldn't know. Yeah. So this the, the thing with the styles is blending. The influences are blending so much. European influence, American influence, South American influence. You know, it's like telling you Eduardo Rizzo is Argentinian. Yeah. You know, would you know if I didn't tell you? Uh, I, I met him. He's he's a he's a wonderful, awesome guy. He's one of my favorites. He's like one of my favorites. Yeah. But it's because you met him, but you know what I mean? Is that you see the Frank Miller's influence on him, but you also see Jordi Burnett. And yeah. you also see, you know, there's, there's a blend of influences that I think make American comics a, a lot more than European comics. And I'm a European. I think American comics are now a cauldron of mix of yeah. influences that makes every single book can find the artist in terms of the style, right? You can go from closest to manga and closest to European, closest to American comics and make the book fit more for the audience you're looking for, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish that we could do some of this stuff. I and mean, I, one of the things, one of the best things I read in the past year was, um, was ping pong by Taiyo Matsumoto. Uh, um, mm -hmm. who also did, yeah. yeah, who also did tech and concrete. Um, and ping pong is like two volume series about competitive teenage ping pong. And it's like, it's fascinating. Like it's, it's poetic, but also like engaging. It's a page turner. And I don't think I could ever publish a, a ping pong, a ping pong book over here. Um, you know, I've had some, some creators pitch me, um, baseball comics and I've really wanted to do it, but it just didn't feel like it was the right time. And like, I knew that they would like, 
draw the best picture you've ever seen of a guy crushing a home run, but I'm, I even, even I get a little gun shy about the content, like besides romance, like loving to do a sports book. Uh, we've done, um, slots with Dan Panosian, which was a boxing book. And that's, that's the closest I've come to. That was still had enough crime in there too. But like, I mean, like, a you know, I, I could never do a, a basketball comic. I don't think, I mean, maybe eventually, but, um, we'll see. We'll see. But I think you you just nailed the answer yourself while you were while you were rambling now because <laughs> uh, you mentioned at the same time the sports and the romance. Yeah. And in most yeah. cases, what makes those romance comics work? Well, uh, wait, no, let me rewind. What makes those sports comics work is the romance aspect of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know? so yeah. I think that's, I think that's what it would work in. It doesn't it doesn't need it in manga because you know. They have a huge audience where you can throw, hey, you know, let's do a book about a chef that's a duck or whatever, you know. <laughs> you read that one. They, they can do whatever because manga has that, you know, has that audience and they can do whatever, like the ping pong book. But in American comics, I always thought that that's the formula. You know, if you want to do sports, the romance part is the mix that you need. You know, like Friday Night Lights, we were discussing before. Sure, yeah. You, know, you have the sport, but it wasn't about the sport. Or at least... At least it never felt that I don't care about American football, you know, yeah. but it, I, I loved it. And, and I watched it religiously and I had to convince my wife about watching it because she was like, nah, it's about sports. And I was like, no, it's like Ted Lasso. Is Ted Lasso about football? Yeah. No, it's not. Ted Lasso is about him and about how pure or whatever you want to call it, him, he is. But yeah. with Friday Night Lights, I thought the same thing. I thought this is about, this is not about the sport. It's about the family. It's about the romance. It's about the, that, that, it's about the soap part of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Right, look so, at that. We cracked it. We cracked it. A romance yes, sports comic. Yes, yes. That's, no, that's, none of you, none of you, you cannot tell anybody. This is, <laughs> that sounds thing. This has to be able to use it. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't heard anything. It's just him. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, we've been at this for one hour and 17 minutes. Wow. And I guess that you need to go back to work. <laughs> yeah, I got an editorial meeting right now, but I'm late too. That's fine. Oh, shit. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I'm no, sorry. no. I, I run the meeting. I told them that it would, it would go on without me. Um, yeah, I'm going to make some coffee and uh, start my day. It was great. It was great talking to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Miss, miss your face, my friend. <laughs> miss your face. <laughs> That's the best way to summarize it. I miss, you, miss your face. And I, uh, sad that you say that you can't make it this year to, to Galicia. But next year we gotta make a plan because well I do I go twice a year of course August and December so we gotta make plans. That's uh that's that's probably next next August maybe let's uh, let's pencil it in lightly and uh, if I can make it to to the East Coast and, and to Cape Cod where where the rest of my family is this summer and then the next summer I'll I'll leap a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Okay, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Love you, miss you, and uh, all that blah blah blah. And yeah. to all of you, thank you for being here. Wear your mask, be decent. We're still not out of the boots. We gotta care for people, okay? So, Absolutely. and see you tomorrow with artists Amankai Nawalpan and Nelson Daniel. Right. Take care and thank you. And we're Have off. A good one.